Seltzer Kings podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That's some pretty keen economic insight there, Gavin, coming from a guy who is from a country that's entire 400-year empire was built on pillaging brown people and sticking it to the Irish. Yes. The following podcast contains... We're more likely to believe an important local businessman than a foul-mouthed jerk from out of town. Foul-mouthed? Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you tried to buy your gas on an odd day but you got an even number plate, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host Dave Bledsoe and this is episode number 349, Gas, Gas, or Gas, No One Rides for Free, edition of the show where we talk about the time when America's economy literally ran out of gas. Stay tuned. The What the Hell Were You Thinking podcast is brought to you by the Chrysler Titanic, a car so big it has time zones. When you think classic Detroit, you think big, and the Chrysler Titanic is bigger than that. Weighing slightly more than a second World War tank and clocking in the gas mileage that needs to fill up before you've even left the driveway, this American classic personifies the Detroit mindset. Yeah, all these cars are huge, but you know what? Fuck it, we'll make ours bigger. Seriously, you could launch an aircraft off the hood of this thing. The Chrysler Titanic, if it doesn't fit in your garage, get a bigger house. We are here at the White House for a special report on the energy crisis. Mr. President, have you any statement? Mr. President, what really caused the energy crisis? During the crisis, how much gas will motorists be allowed? Just enough for the city. Who do you believe the gas shortage will affect most? Mr. President, the crisis must be solved. What do you intend to do? With me now is the head of the Federal Energy Office. Sir, you hold an important position. What are your qualifications? I'm a joker, I'm a smoker, I'm a midnight toker. Mr. President, have you anything to add? Leave me alone, just leave me alone. Here with me is the new Vice President, Chevy Ford. Sir, how would you sum up the gas shortage? We have a long-distance call from Saudi Arabia. King Faisal, is that you? Hello, it's me. King Faisal, what are your thoughts when you look out at all those oil wells? You're beautiful, and you're mine. My old man was never a car guy. To the best of my knowledge, he never owned a flashy or fancy car in his life. They were always just like him. Very practical and, well, honestly, pretty boring. I love my dad, but he's never been Mr. Excitement. 
I mean, his idea of a wild night on the town has always been going to church on Thursday for fellowship night. Yeah, let's not get crazy. Same for his cars. Lots of sedans and varying shades of brown. Solid, dependable, reliable. Often purchased used because, come on, who needs a new car? And it's the one of the very few traits that I share with my father. Cars for me have always been a method of transportation, not a lifestyle choice. If I had to guess, I, my dad was like this because of the 1970s. You see, back in the mid-1970s, my dad went back to college to finish a degree with a wife and two kids. Um, sounds very difficult. Yeah, it was for all of us. Money was super tight. The four of us lived in student housing, ate a lot of pancakes, and it was the only time in my life that I remember my parents really fighting, and they were fighting a lot. Why were they fighting? Because we had no fucking money. Everything turned out fine, but it was a rough few years there. Because we had no money, we had to save on pretty much everything, and one of the big things we saved money on was buying an absurdly small car. Datsun unleashes a new class of economy car, the new 510s. Bigger than our small cars, smaller than the big cars. Hatchback, wagon, sedans. It's Datsun, driven to its all-around best. Nobody demands more from a Datsun than Datsun. We are driven. Some number, Datsun. We'd always had a generic American car, and back then that mean, meant we had cars large enough to hold at least 10 people comfortably on those huge bent seats, and a trunk big enough to carry at least five dead bodies or three living ones if you needed to sneak them into a drive-in movie. Sure, the American behemoth had laughable gas mileage. A factory fresh Detroit model in 1970 got an average of 11.9 miles per gallon. And since that was the average, a lot of them were a lot worse. A 73 Lincoln Continental got seven miles per gallon. Good God. Our little Datsun 210 got between 20 and 30 miles a gallon. And it also retailed for around two grand or around $10,000 in today's money, compared to an average of five grand or $25,000 for an American car. So you could see why we downsized. And even as a six-year-old, to me, this car was fucking ludicrous. It looked like someone stuck wheels on a cracker box. It actually looked more like someone had modeled a car on a toy car that a toddler went on. And it was almost as fast as a toy car a toddler went on. That little Datsun was hands down the most absurd-looking car you could buy at the time. And because it got such great gas mileage, everybody bought one. Why? Well, that's our topic for this week. The oil crisis of the 1970s. It's time for a disco minute. Before I get to the embargoes, I got to take a minute here to explain the historical and geopolitical backstory. I want to know absolutely everything that's happened up to now. Well, let's see. First, the Earth cooled, and then the dinosaurs came. But they got too big and fat, so they all died, and they turned into oil. And then the Arabs came, and they bought Mercedes Benzes. And Prince Charles started wearing all of Lady Di's clothes. I couldn't believe it. He took her best summer dress out of the closet, and put it on and went to town. Did I schedule this episode just so I could play that drop? I'll never tell. Honestly, it goes back before the dinosaurs, but to shorten it way down, around a... 180 million years ago, there was this supercontinent called Gowanda. That is not a thing. No, seriously, that was his name. It consisted of basically what is all the southern continents now. On Gowanda sat the Tethys Oceans for hundreds of millions of years, a fairly shallow ocean that just teemed with life. 
By the way, the remnants of the Tethys Ocean Basin form the Caspian and Black Seas today. So you've learned something. As millions of years of plants and animals died and settled to the shallow bottom of the Tethys and compressed into layers of petroleum-bearing shale rock, the richest area of the former ocean would become what is today the Middle East, the Arabian Peninsula, and the Iranian side of the Persian Gulf. Well, thanks, Professor. Fast forward 65 million years. That is a big jump. That is very big. Humanity discovers that burning this black gooey stuff they pulled out of the ground is far more efficient than burning the black hard stuff they'd been pulling out of the ground for so long. And they started looking for more places with more of the black gooey stuff. They find a place named fairly racistly, the Middle East has shit tons of the black gooey stuff. So they move in and steal it. Naturally, the people who lived in the Middle East thought that this was not a very fair deal with them. After all, they had lived in what is a tremendously shitty place for millennia and reasonably assumed that they ought to get something for their trouble of living there. There were a couple of world wars, and after the second one, white people decided that ruling these people where all the black goo live is more trouble than it's worth, and they set up some agreeable locals on thrones, and the modern states of the Middle East were created. Are we done? I just crammed 180 million years of history into about two minutes and you're complaining about the two minutes? And no, we're not done. We're just getting to the truly relevant part. Following World War II, the Seven Sisters dominated the market. What the fuck is that? Is that porn? Well, they fucked a lot of people, but not in a loving way. So no, the Seven Sisters were the Anglo-Iranian oil company, now called British Petroleum, Royal Dutch Shell, now Shell Oil, Standard Oil Company of California, that became Chevron. Gulf Oil, merged into Chevron now. Texaco, also merged with Chevron. The Standard Oil Company of New Jersey, Esso, later Exxon, now part of Exxon Mobil. The Standard Oil Company of New York, or Soconi, later Mobil, now part of Exxon Mobil. The seven controlled 85% of the world's oil reserves and took 90% of the money from the nations that held all that oil. The nation sitting on top of that oil decided, Well, that's a bit of a problem. And in September of 1960, Iran, Iraq, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, and Venezuela banded together to form the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, or OPEC. According to OPEC, the mission statement of OPEC is to, quote, coordinate and unify petroleum policies among the member countries in order to secure fair and stable prices for petroleum producers an efficient economic and regular supply of petroleum to consuming nations and a fair return on capital to those investing in the industry, unquote. But its actual goal was to kick the thieving fucking colonialists out of their goddamn country and take back the oil fields that rightfully belong to them. And that, pod friends, is exactly what they did. This, as you can imagine, caused just a bit of, uh, of economic turmoil. And by the end of the 1960s, an expanded OPEC controlled more than half the world's oil production. And the Organization of Arab Petroleum Exporting Countries, Kuwait, Libya, Saudi Arabia, more or less, those are the guys that dominated OPEC. They had the most money and the most influence on all the other members. Again, super simplifying things for the sake of brevity and for the sake of my not entirely understanding them. Meanwhile, back in the West, particularly the US of A, a place with pretty significant oil reserves of our own, the Seven Sisters had dramatically scaled back oil production. Why? Well, it turns out you could pay the people in the Middle East a lot less to do the dangerous and dirty work of extracting that black goo from the ground. 
White people wanted to be paid a fair and living wage for their work, and brown people could be exploited for far less money. This is capitalism 101. So the oil companies became more or less utterly dependent on foreign oil, and because the entire fucking economy of the West depended on oil from those oil companies, the literal fuel of our economic engine depended on foreign oil as well. Is that a good idea? <laughs> no. As we'll see... It wasn't. It really became clear how bad of an idea it was in late 1973 when Egypt and her allies attacked Israel on Yom Kippur. Right! How'd that all work out? Well, after the humiliating defeat of the Six-Day War seven years earlier, the Arab states spent years planning and preparing for this perfect sneak attack that would force Israel to give back the land it had seized during the Six-Day War as a minimum. And unfortunately for the Arab states, uh, it, it, it didn't go that way. After three weeks of heavy fighting and almost bringing the world to the brink of nuclear exchange between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, the Arab states went down in what could be best described as a... Uh, Defeat. Shameful. Ignominious. I want to be clear here. The Arab states had and have a legitimate beef. The colonial powers had just created Israel out of Palestine like there weren't Palestinians living there for a couple of thousand years while a Jewish nation had not existed for that said two millennia that the Palestinians had lived there. The Israelis, who admittedly were fresh off of almost being exterminated as a people, considered that chunk of Palestine where the Palestinians were currently living their ancestral homeland and were damn sure not going to give it up once they had it. At the same time, the Arab states were blatantly saying they would pretty much kill every Israeli in Israel if that's what it took to get them out, which is why the whole damn situation was and remains such a... It's a complete and total shit show, Donald. After the shooting stopped, the seething Arab nations began looking for a way to give a little payback to the West, who had rest arms and ammunition to Israel to shore up their defenses during the Yom Kippur War, and that's when they remembered, hey, we've got all the fucking oil. They sat down, they had a chat, and decided, We'll just see about that! And turned off the oil faucet to Canada? Jeez! Jeez, what do we do here? Japan, the Netherlands, the United Kingdom, and the United States. Essentially, OPEC... Shut the world by the bulls. And there wasn't a whole lot that the world could do about it. In October of 1973, before the embargo began, the cost of a barrel of oil on the world market was three bucks. It's around 28 bucks in today's money. As the embargo lasted, it shot up 300% to $12, around $75 in today's money. For reference, a barrel of crude as of this recording is around 90 bucks. In the United States, prices of gas and for heating oil were much higher because our demand outstripped the rest of the world. The cost of a gallon of gas pre-embargo 1973, $0.39, cents, about two fifty in 2022 dollars. By March of 1974, was 54 cents, or around $3.30 today. And again, for reference, today the average price of gas is right around $3.30, $3.50. And this probably sounds kind of reasonable for you. We see fluctuations in oil and gas prices all the time. But for Americans in 1970, it was fucking apocalyptic. First of all, people didn't make the kind of money they make today. In 1973, minimum wage was $1.60 an hour. That is $10.05 an hour, which is uh, actually, when I think of it, almost $3 more than what minimum wage is today. And so, yeah, you know, go ahead and work with that. 
But also, the one sure thing in life was that gasoline was cheap and available. It was writ on stone tablets and handed down by George fucking Washington from Mount Vernon as an article of faith in American life. Now, it wasn't, and no one knew how to deal with rising gas prices, assuming that you could find any gas at all. Oh, man, I missed that drop. I'm glad to have it back. It was in 1973 and basically still is true that as an American, you can always get gasoline. You might not be able to afford as much gas as you want, but you can get gas. It was as sure as turning on the tap and having water flow that there would be gas. By mid-November of 1973, this was not true in the least and Americans were not happy. Quoting from Smithsonian Magazine, quote, The oil crisis affected everything from home heating to business costs that were passed on to consumers in a range of industries. But the impact was most obvious on the roads. Gas station lines wrapped around blocks. Some stations posted flags, green if they had gas, red if they didn't, and yellow if they were rationing. Some businesses limited how much each customer could buy. Others used odd, even rationing. If the last digit of a car license was odd, you could fill up on odd numbers days. The notions that Americans were going to run out of gas was both new and completely terrifying. By February of 1974, according to the Baltimore Sun's Mike Klingman, drivers in Maryland found themselves waiting in five-mile lines. Some stations illegally sold to regular customers only, while others let doctors and nurses jump the line. Fights broke out, and some station owners began carrying guns for self-protection. One man, John Wankin of Cockeysville, described spending a whole morning driving around the city looking for gas, but only managing to buy $2 worth, just enough to replenish the half tank he'd burned driving around during the four hours looking for gas, unquote. Our national obsession with the car had created a society where not having a car wasn't possible. And hell, this is true today as it was in 1973. At the same time, since the 1950s, the U.S. government had controlled the price of gasoline. Breaks of communism. (laughs) Yeah, funny how that back during the height of Cold War paranoia, No one thought it was communistic to control the price of gas, but if you tried that today, see how fast you got ran out of town on a pole. But there was just so much oil back then that no one gave it any thought. No one considered gas mileage when it came to cars. When your tank ran low, you just put more gas in the tank for that artificially low price and motored off into the great American highway bound for glory. Until, of course, the day the economy literally ran out of gas. The 73-74 embargo ended in March of 74, and it didn't force the Israelis to pull back to pre-war borders and the other oil-producing nations outside the Persian Gulf just couldn't resist the lure of big money by ramping up their oil production. So the embargo officially ended, but OPEC was still able to throttle back production and create scarcity, scarcity further driving up prices. Inflation was already creeping up, but it fucking rocketed with this first oil shock right through the roof. It was clear something had to change, even in car-crazy America. From Wikipedia, quote, To help reduce the consumption in 1974, a national maximum speed limit of 55 miles an hour was enacted. Well, I hate it. Hate it, hate it, hate it. 
year-round daylight savings time was implemented from January 6th of 1974 to October 27th of 1975, with a break between October 27th, 1974 and February of 1975, when the country observed standard time. I feel like I should hate that more. Parents complained loudly that it forced many children to travel to school before sunrise. The crisis prompted a call to conserve energy, most notably a campaign by the Ad Council using the tagline, Don't Be Fuelish. This is from uh, Coach Don Shula. If you're going to win the big ball games, you need teamwork. Now, our country's energy crisis is no game. But if we all work together, it will work out better for all of us. So let's keep our thermostats at 68 degrees or lower. Let's drive under 50 miles an hour and save electricity where possible. If we all help, we'll really be helping ourselves. Please, don't be foolish. Thanks, Coach Shula. Thank you from all America. Many newspapers carried advertisements featuring cutouts that could be attached to light switches, reading, last out, lights out, don't be foolish. In 1975, the Energy Policy and Conservation Act was passed, leading to the creation of the Corporate Average Fuel Economy, or CAFE standards, that required improved fuel economy for cars and light trucks, unquote. In addition to government-mandated change, American consumers, like my dad, responded to the oil crisis by giving up their beloved behemoths in favor of small, less manly vehicles. Again, from Wikipedia, quote, the crisis reduced the demand for large cars. Japanese imports, primarily the Toyota Corona, the Toyota Corolla, the Datsun B210, and the Datsun 510, the Honda Civic, the Mitsubishi Galant, what was a called a captive import from Chrysler that was sold as the Dodge Colt. Oh, God, those were terrible cars. The Subaru DL and later the Honda Accord, all had four-cylinder engines that were more fuel-efficient than the typical American V8 and six-cylinder engines. Japanese imports became mass-market leaders with unibody constructions, front-wheel drive, that became the de facto standard. From Europe, we had the Volkswagen Beetle, the Volkswagen Fastback, the Renault 8, and the Renault Lecar. Hurry up, Mabel! We gotta get these eggs to the market! Introducing the 1980 Renault LeCar. It gives you great performance without sacrificing comfort. It has rack and pinion steering and front-wheel drive for great handling. And four-wheel independent suspension to keep things comfortable inside, even when it's bumpy outside. All with estimated 30-mile-per-gallon economy. We made it! Renault LeCar. At Renault, we build more into economy cars than just economy. Um, if my uh, dad's Datsun 510 was just an absurdly silly tiny car, the Renault Le car made that look like a fucking Lincoln Continental. Jesus Christ, this car was just... The car was so awful that Hugo stole the design. Google it. Google a Le car. It is just the silliest damn thing you've ever seen, except for their modern counterparts on the street today, which actually... I would buy if I could fit into one. <clears throat> Back to Wikipedia, quote, the uh, Fiat Bravo were successful. Detroit responded with, oh, bless your heart, Detroit, the Ford Pinto, the Ford Maverick, the Chevy Vega, and the Chevy Nova. Plymouth came out with the Valiant 
and the volare whoa which was just a piece of shit no they were horrible my god every fucking plymouth and chrysler product was just a turd on wheels but not quite as bad as the american motor companies with their homegrown gremlin hornet and pacer models you know the gremlin from uh, wayne's world you know the pacer from various now you don't know the pacer but i know the hornet because my family had one and it made our Datsun look like a fucking lamborghini despite all of that we were still in no way prepared when in 1979 another oil crisis happened oh no not again you see, what had happened was the United States had long propped up this cat named Mohammed Reza Pahlavi, but he liked to be called the Shah of Iran. Now, the Shah, great guy, totally awesome guy. If you happen to be an oil executive or not a communist, he was so great that when the people of Iran freely elected a dude by the name of Mohammed Mossadegh, who uh, showed great promise in doing things like modernizing Iran with a progressive secular democracy and, and help the people of Iran gain a share of their national wealth by, you know, nationalizing the oil fields and taking them away from the British. The CIA and the British MI6 overthrew his government. Fuck that bitch. Yeah, fuck that bitch. And turned the Shah, who was previously a figurehead, into a full-on dictator king. This did not go down well with the people of Iran, mostly because they were being terrorized by the Shah's secret police and his authoritarian rule. And so in 1978, they gathered together and tossed the Shah right the fuck out and installed a fundamentalist cleric by the name of Saeed Rahala Musava Khomeini as the head of a brand new thing called an Islamic Republic. You, uh, you probably know Saeed Rahala Masava Khomeini by his uh, title, the, uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini. And he was not down with two things, rock and roll and America. He stopped the sales of Iranian oil to the West, and oh yeah, his followers took over the U.S. Embassy, held the ambassador and staff hostage for over a year because the United States had allowed the deposed Shah to come to America for his cancer treatments. It, it was a whole thing back then. It wasn't a full-on embargo like 73, but you see the U.S. had so long been sucking at the Iranian oil teat over OPEC because our boy the Shah sold it to us so cheap. And when Iran slowed down the rest of OPEC, didn't really move up production because you know fuck you america and oil prices shot up way more than they did in 1973 after the shit hit the fan a barrel of oil was around 15 bucks and it skyrocketed to 40 it's over 150 dollars in 2022 dollars and it was the highest oil would go until 2008 the net effect of the 79 crisis was equally as dramatic as 1973, even while the real oil supply only dropped by around 4%. It was an entirely psychological situation. But you can't really blame the people of America. They've had a hard decade. Inflation was through the roof. Everyone was tired and worn out. And now here was this shit again. It's like we just slid off a cliff and lay at the bottom softly weeping. Hello up there. I seem to have fallen down a cliff. I'm still alive, but I'm very badly injured. I think my legs might be broken, but I'll, I'll try to stand up. Oh! Yes, they are broken. 
Perhaps you could toss me a band-aid or some antibacterial cream. It was though the entire country had a sense of, uh, I don't know, not we. No, that's not the right word. A doldrum. No. Melancholy. That's a little closer. That's just a sort of general malaise. That's the word. President Jimmy Carter, who again was not a bad president, as we shall see next week, responded to the crisis as best he could, but found himself unable to do much since Congress was also in a funk. Going back to our old standby Wikipedia quote, another energy shortage hit the United States in 1979, forcing millions of frustrated motorists to wait in long lines at gasoline stations. In response, Carter asked Congress to deregulate the price of domestic oil. At the time, domestic oil prices were not set by the world market, but rather by a complex price controls of the 1975 Energy Policy and Conservation Act. Oil companies strongly favored the deregulation of prices since it would increase their profits. <laughs> but some members of Congress worried that deregulation would contribute to inflation. In late April and early May, the Gallup poll found only 14% of the public believed that America was actually in an energy shortage. The other 77% believed that this was brought on by the oil companies just to make a profit. What happened to America? We used to see the truth. Sorry. Back to Wikipedia. Carter paired the deregulation proposal with a windfall profits tax, which would return about half the new profits of the oil companies to the federal government. See, see, we used to tax these fuckers. Carter used a provision of the EPCA to phase in oil controls, but Congress balked at implementing the proposed tax in July of 1979. Oh, that's... That's what happened to us. As the energy crisis continued, Carter met with a series of business, government, labor, and academic and religious leaders in an effort to overhaul his administration policies. His pollster, Pat Cadell, told him that the American people faced a crisis of confidence stemming from the assassinations of major leaders in the 60s, the Vietnam War, and the Watergate scandal. Though most of his top advisors urged him to continue to focus on inflation and the energy crisis, Carter seized on Cadell's notion that the major crisis facing the country was a crisis of confidence. On July 15th, Carter delivered a nationally televised speech in which he called for long-term limits on oil imports, the development of synthetic fuels, but he also stated all legislation in the world can't fix what's wrong with America, what is lacking is confidence, and a sense of community. The speech came to be known as his malaise speech, although Carter never used the word malaise in the speech, unquote. It is a crisis of confidence. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. We can see this crisis in the growing doubt about the meaning of our own lives and in the loss of a unity of purpose for our nation. The erosion of our confidence in the future is threatening to destroy the social and the political fabric of America. Oh, Jimmy, you were right all along. We just hadn't all got there yet. Jimmy's little pep talk. Although, to be honest, it, it was a buzzkill of a speech. It, it, it didn't work. In fact, it solidified public opinion that this George Cracker had no fucking clue what the hell they were do what the hell he was doing because Americans do not like to be told that they are the problem. And as things got worse with a hostage crisis continuing for months and months and months. That gave us Ted Koppel and Nightline. God, I remember just watching Ted Koppel and Nightline. And that's day 340. 
I'm sorry, I'm really just completely off the rails here with this, but you have no idea how Ted Koppel's hair never changed for like three decades. I'm sorry, sorry, going back. Uh, <laughs> there was no reason I had to say that. I just, uh, I just said it anyway. This, this whole, this whole episode has just gotten really strange for me. It's, I think it has something to do with the cars. Gavin, leave all that in. America began looking for a fresh new fix for our problems, and I guess you know who we turn to. Robin Williams. God, I wish. Can you imagine if we elected Robin Williams instead of Ronald Reagan? The country would have been so much zanier and fun. Admittedly, at the time, Robin was really badly hooked on cocaine, but I think coked up economics is far better than trickle-down economics. After 1979, oil prices began to slide precipitously as the production ramped up all around the world. New oil fields were discovered, and other nations outside the Persian Gulf joined OPEC, diluting the power of the Arab nations over oil prices. Indeed, this created what came to be called as the oil glut. That sounds disgusting. Which, of course, led to loosening emission standards, increasing carbon-based energy production, which, of course, led to great profits for the oil companies, leading them to finance the research, hiding how burning all this oil, gas, and coal would dry-fuck the planet in just a few decades. And, of course, all of our major wars after the fall of the Soviet Union were because of oil. And all of that was caused by a shallow ocean on an ancient supercontinent 180 million years ago now you know the rest of the story what people don't know is that for a hot minute in the late 1970s we had a chance we could chart a new course move away from an oil-based economy focus on renewables nuclear power embrace reduction and conservation jimmy carter installed solar panels on the white house roof and suggested america wear a sweater if america was chilly generally hinting that we could fix this shit if we just changed our ways a little bit you know who came along ripped off the solar panels told the oil companies to go dig up alaska and america not only crank up that thermostat if you were goddamn cold but you could go ahead and leave your fucking refrigerator door open and air conditioning the entire goddamn neighborhood if that's what you want no matter what your dad was saying because yeah america is made out of money god bless america and god bless ronald reagan that is how we got to where we are today totally fucked but at least we had Hummers that got six miles a gallon in the mid-2000s, and they only cost thousands of lives in three wars and the future of humanity on the planet. Oh, they look cool, though. They look so cool. They did look pretty cool. That is it for our show this week. See, this week bridges our little not-a-series series between the Knicks and Ford years and next week's show about the man for planes, President Jimmy Carter. I'm looking forward to explaining to you all the things that you never knew about Jimmy the president. Sure, you like Jimmy the ex-president, but there was a lot to like about Jimmy the president. So tune in next week. Speaking of explaining things you never knew, rate and review the show wherever you get your pods. It will help others find the show and explain a lot about you that they never knew and now really wish that they didn't support the pod on patreon.com slash what the hell podcast it helps put the gas in the tank of the show and by gas i mean whiskey and by tank i mean my belly 
do all the things that Jeremy's about to tell you to do at the end of the show, including putting on a sweater if you're chilly, because do Seltzer Kings look like it's made out of money? It does not. Silver me, Dave, I can't afford the gas to fill my luxury limousine, but even if I have the dough, no one's got the gasoline blood, so producer, he offered some red hot speed and some really high grade hash, but a gallon of gas can't be purchased anywhere for any amount of cash. Hope the devil. Gavin and all the fictional gas station attendants on this show, we want to say, I can score you some Coke and some grade one grass, but I can't get one gallon of gas. We'll see you all next week. What the hell were you thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings podcast network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com or on Twitter at the hell underscore podcast or on Facebook as what the hell podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Blame President James Jimmy Carter. Seltzer Kings. Podcasts.